Hello and welcome to Mike Bites, episode 162. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host, Mike Thomas. Hello. If you're new, great to have you with us and welcome to the Mike Bites family. Mike Bites is a tech podcast where we share our thoughts on tech news, Apple Kit and so much more. We also review apps and as IT professionals, we share both our love for hardware and software. We're a quirky show, and just to prove that, let me share one of our stories from the Newbie's Guide to MacBytes that you'll find at macbytes.co.uk. After the full moon rising on the poster for episode 160, what else could today's Newbie's Guide blast from the past be but the BotBot song? A classic MacBytes tale that started when Mike's mic let him down. We ended up with a long recording of what sounded like Laurie Anderson's Superman from the early 80s, which was funny enough on its own. But what Graham did with it next took the entire thing to new levels of hilarity. Check out episode 94 for the full 12-inch remix. But if you can't wait, here's a little taste of, to word it rather inelegantly, Mike's Bot Bot. With a quick reminder that Mike Bites Syrian Lady Siri will probably join us at some point, let's crack on with the show. I saw what you did there, and it's quite put me off my lunch. For the third show in just over a month, we have farm tech to share. Remember that iPhone-enabled tractor? I mean, who could forget it? It was the star turn of CES 2022. I know, the clue is in the name, Consumer Electronics Show. But never mind. Well, it seems that tractors have become an acceptable birthday gift. Now, I don't mean children-sized models of tractors. I mean full-sized farm machinery tractors. It was reported that Alexander Lukashenko, head honcho of Belarus, sent Vladimir Putin a tractor for his 70th birthday. A couple of weeks back. To be completely accurate, he sent him a voucher for a tractor. Yes, I wondered about that too. Where can you buy a voucher for a tractor? I've seen iTunes vouchers, Amazon vouchers, even Netflix vouchers, but I've never seen a tractor voucher. A thing in Belarus, but not in the UK by the look of it. No news of what Vlad thought of the gift, but he's got a lot on at the moment. Lukashenko did explain that he himself has a smaller scale model of the tractor in his own garden. Is there some hidden meaning to tractors that I'm unaware of? We will be sure to keep alert to any future tech tractor stories. In non-tractor related news, it appears that Apple intended to have an event for the new iPad. They had a name, take note. They made a video and then changed their mind. Hmm. Well, given the mess that the iPad lineup is now, I'm not actually surprised. The iPad Pro is now M2 and an arm and a leg. The iPad 10 is a weird mixture of new features, like a horizontal camera, but it's only compatible with Apple Pencil 1, which means... It needs a dongle. Why? Apple and their history with ports and dongles had already reached farcical levels. This one just puts the cherry on the top. So many questions. The most significant of which is, will Apple Pencil 1 ever die? 
thinking back, it was originally released in the autumn of 2015. Apple Pencil 2 arrived in October 2018 alongside the third gen iPad Pro. Why not just release a new one? Even if it couldn't charge magnetically, it could be Apple Pencil 1.5. It would still look ridiculous sticking out of the iPad charging port, though. Doesn't matter if it's sticking out of a lightning port or a USB-C port. It all looks the same. Still, Apple will have to give up in the end as the EU are demanding that everything goes USB-C. A fact that did not escape Jaws this week, or as Timmy calls him, Jaws, who confirmed the iPhone will be going USB-C. Didn't mention the pencil. No, it'll have to go. It'll just have to go. Apart from the pencil, I think the entry-level iPad 10 has been shown more love than the iPad Pro. Snazzy new keyboard, as I heard it, with function keys. Couldn't quite believe that one myself. 10.9-inch screen, but the starting price was increasing by $120, going from $329 to $449. Given what I managed to get it to as I spec'd it up, 449's not bad. I'm sure mine was double. Mm, never mind. I would probably have gone for the iPad Pro, but... What should be the flagship iPad really hadn't changed that much. Nothing new to report other than the addition of the M2 chip. You wouldn't have thought it would be beyond Apple to add the function keys to the keyboard for the Pro model. If the non-Pro device has them, surely the Pro model should have at least parity. I've given up trying to work out what Apple are doing, though. They're a law unto themselves these days. Other than that, there was the Apple TV. I couldn't be less interested personally. I am the least qualified person on the planet to have an opinion on an Apple TV. So you folks need to let me know if it's worth your attention. I have previously bought an Apple TV. In fact, bought more than one, to be honest. One was for the MacBytes mum and she loved it. The other was for delivering presentations via AirPlay. That wasn't for her. That was for me. It's still in my tech travel bag. Yes, gathering dust since March 2020. Hence, I can't see me rushing out to replace it. But if you're interested, it's 4K and much faster than the previous one. And it's cheaper. It now has the same A15 Bionic chip found inside the iPhone 13 and 14. And when I said cheaper, I meant considerably. The starting price is $129, which makes it $50 less than the previous model. But don't worry about Apple's bottom line. Apple have a cunning plan. More on that later. But is there more to come? Because we're still waiting for any updates to the Macs. Of course, we know Apple are much keener on their portable devices than desktop toys. So it's a case of wait and see there. Which means nothing is imminently arriving at MapBytes headquarters. We're waiting and seeing too. Actually, I think I might wait for that giant iPad, the one I've been predicting for longer than Timmy has been counting his ad revenue. I predicted 17-inch iPads a couple of years back, and the latest rumours are saying, and I know we don't believe rumours, but you know, I've got to report it, 16-inch iPad next year. These, of course, will be the exact same rumours that have been predicting Apple Glass for... Five years? Six years? Quite a time. I think 17 would be better, but, you know, this is Apple. They do things their way. So once we'd got the eventless event over, 
iOS 16 and a macOS Ventura arrived. I did the deed while you were in your happy place, Mike, delivering an Excel session. It was a comical race between my M1 iPad and my 2017 10.5-inch iPad. I started the M1 going, downloading the update. Over five minutes later, I started the 2017 downloading. You guessed it. Apple Minutes kicked in and the 2017 finished downloading first by seven minutes. The difference in performance between the two was more evident once they actually got going with the installation. The M1 finished 10 minutes before the 2017 model. And it was all alarmingly without incident. I literally couldn't see a difference after I'd done it. No obvious bells and whistles. I don't do the beta thing, so I don't ruin the surprise and delight of a major OS update. But there was nothing doing here. Not even a nice Apple guided tour of the new features. So I went off on a hunt for something new to play with. And I found an article that covered five new features. Number one, cleaner energy charging. But I believe that's only on the iPhone. It charges when the power grid can use cleaner energy sources. Really? I'm not at all sure that we have anything like that here in the UK. It takes them all the time to keep the lights on right now. So I moved on. Number two, iCloud shared photo library. Well, I turned everything related to photos off in iCloud years ago. I still get assaulted by spam requests when I set up a new device, though. So sadly, I failed to muster any kind of enthusiasm for this one. I pressed on. Number three, live activities. Live Activities lets the apps show relevant real-time information on the lock screen. Think football scores. Another example that was mentioned in this article was food deliveries. We don't eat takeaways. So unless Mike has a personal app that I can track his culinary progress, that isn't going to be that exciting either. It did assure me, though, that it would work well with a dynamic island. <laughs> Time to move on again. Number four, Apple Fitness Plus without an Apple Watch. Well, I've got an Apple Watch, so I guess this one wasn't intended for me either. I pressed on. I've lost count at this stage. But it was share keys in Apple Wallet. Now, to be precise, sharing car keys or hotel keys in Apple Wallet. I'm sure I've mentioned before that my car's so old it has a crank handle. So that won't be happening anytime soon. And as for hotel keys, I can't think of anything worse as we head into yet another germ-ridden winter than bedding down in a hotel. By this stage, I was on to looking at the small print in an attempt to find something to thrill me. The small print was an Apple savings account in Apple Wallet. Like I have any money left after buying all my Apple toys. Matter support in the Home app. I've never even opened the Home app. Enhanced reading experience in the Books app. <laughs> I'd have to find the Books app first. By this stage, I was onto the bug fixes and stability improvements, which was when I remembered the flagship stage manager thing. I went off looking for that. It's turned off by default. Why? If it's so good, why hide it? Well, after less than two minutes fighting with it, I worked out why. It's hideous. I understand the idea, but I question the logic. 
When the iPad was introduced, what we were all hoping for was what was then OS X on a tablet. Apple patiently and diligently explained that a new form factor required a completely new OS that could take advantage of its specific features. Since then, they seem to have spent years trying to shoehorn iOS into macOS. Now everybody is talking about apps being desktop class. If desktop class is so desirable, why don't you just use a desktop and be done? But it seems Apple are still trying to convince us that an iPad is a real computer. And it appears that running multiple apps and having the ability to quickly switch between them is a necessity. Fair enough. But this implementation's just plain weird. So much wasted space on the screen, windows moving themselves randomly around the screen after I'd managed to set them up. So it's a no from me. I watch you play with Stage Manager. Luckily, my iPad's too old to support it. No great loss, I wouldn't use it. I don't even use Split View, unless there's two footy matches on at the same time, of course. That is why I have more than one iPad. So I can dedicate an iPad to each job. Actually, back when I bought them, I could probably get three iPads for the price of a new iPad Pro as well. Anyway, all of that was before we even contemplated Ace Ventura Pet Detective OS. Too long didn't read version. Not going anywhere near it. Not this year. We'll be lucky if it's before 2024 for me. Which takes us neatly on to financial news of the week. Now that they've got you used to paying subscriptions, Apple are putting up the prices of said subscriptions. It's like boiling a frog. You don't notice the incremental increases until it's too late. The rises are between $1 and $3 each per month. So it's plus $2 on Apple TV+, plus $1 on Music Personal, plus $2 on Music Family, $2 on Apple One Individual, $3 on Apple One Family and $3 on Apple One Premiere, which will affect us not one jot. Apple would have to pay me to watch their TV service. And despite the reserves of cash they have, I can assure you they don't have enough money to pay me to veg out in front of a TV. I don't think they really need to increase these prices, but maybe they feel that people are now reliant on the services to the extent that they can get away with it. There's also the chance that they feel the original prices reflected their initial foray into the market and that these prices are more in line with the services that they're now providing. Either way, not happening here. What do you folks reckon? Good value or not? Let me know. So picture the scene. There I was minding my own business when an email arrived. Nothing unusual there, you might think. But it was from Google, and Google don't usually bother me unless there's something that needs updating, or a sacrificial chicken needs sending to them. The subject line was nothing short of alarming, and I quote, One of your payment accounts was cancelled. What? I hadn't done a thing. Opening it as fast as my fingers would permit, I was greeted with a huge headline confirming the subject. A payments account was cancelled. Your payments account, in quotes, YouTube, was recently cancelled. OMG, that is catastrophic. And how did it happen? I had no idea. There was literally no other information in the mail. No account name, no account reference, no way to contact anyone at Google, obviously. 
than ever is with Google. So hyperventilating it was then. Even trying to log into the finance side of Google is a dark art. I won't say it's tricky to navigate, but here's what happened back in 2012 when my YouTube channel was monetized. There's nothing ever simple when it comes to Google. So in 2011, I created my YouTube channel, uploaded a few videos, and within a year, I'd reached the required number of subscribers and watch hours that Google demanded for the channel to be monetized. I received a monetization invitation. I read the instructions. I contemplated downing a bottle of vodka to ease the idea of starting the process. But then I came to my teetotal senses and I started to complete the paperwork. And I do mean paperwork. Faxing of actual paperwork was required. Then, and you'll love this, I had to wait for a physical letter from Google in the US to arrive here with the final secret code enclosed within so I was able to complete the process. So, with that in mind, you can imagine my horror at the thought of having to go through anything like that process all over again. I spent an hour doing my very best to ignore the issue. La la la, it's not happening. Which was when you finished work. I vented, sorry, sorry, shared my frustration. You, of course, did the logical thing and did the Googles. Apparently, the internet had exploded with others receiving the same mail and having an even more visceral reaction than me. I didn't know that was possible. I was surprised too. It turns out it was just Google being Google in their usual let's freak everybody out way. What the mail didn't mention was that the fact that the cancelled account had actually been converted automatically into another account. More to their liking. I mean, seriously, they created you another account and they didn't tell you about it. The only thing they mentioned was that they'd cancelled an account or, to be more accurate, an account had been cancelled, implying somebody else did it, not Google. Considering how clever Google think they are, their communications are nothing short of shocking. So here's to wondering what next week's missive from Google will bring. I'll be sure to report back. Now, if you listened to the last show, you may well remember my quest to regain some disk space. And one of my options was to delete my month's files from the hard drive of one of my iMacs. Well, earlier this week, I decided to do it. We've talked about pCloud on MacBytes as well as After Hours and Marooned, but for any new listeners, it's a cloud storage service. As an aside, did you know that Notion, where I put my notes for MacBytes shows, red squiggles the word pCloud, but only if you type it with a capital P. If you type it with a lowercase p, it's okay. If you right-click on the misspelled word, it offers you iCloud as an alternative. There's got to be a gag in there somewhere. Anyway, I've got four terabytes of storage on pCloud, which is totally unused, and I'm paying for it. So I thought I'd move Mummy Thomas's files there. Yes, 453 gigs worth. I logged into my pCloud account in a browser and dragged the whole lot across from Finder, and it copied two files over, and then the browser came up with a message, page unresponsive, and offered two options, wait or quit. I clicked wait. Nothing happened. And a few seconds later, the message appeared again. I clicked wait again. And again, nothing happened. So the third time the message appeared, I clicked quit. 
I guess trying to upload about 450 gig of files through a browser interface in one go was asking a lot. So I deleted the few files that had uploaded and emptied the pCloud trash. I didn't have pCloud Drive installed on the Mac, so I downloaded and installed it. pCloud Drive creates a virtual drive on your computer and any files that you put in that virtual drive, which physically is just a folder on your machine, are uploaded to pCloud. And this is different to syncing. With syncing, that's where you have two copies of each file, one on your computer and one in the cloud, and they're kept in sync. With pCloud Drive, there is only one copy of each file and it lives in the cloud. What you see in the folder when you look at it in Finder is a pointer file. So say it's a Word document. When you double click the pointer, it opens the file directly from the cloud. You make changes and save and it uploads the one and only copy of the file. But back to my story. Once I'd installed pCloud Drive, I opened Finder and dragged a folder called Hillary's Documents. That's the one containing 453 gig of files across to the pCloud Drive folder. 15 minutes, it said. I thought, not too bad. 25 minutes, it said. 36 minutes, it said. You get the idea? These were evidently Apple minutes. I guess I should have copied them across in batches, but I was busy. I didn't have time to babysit my computer. I wanted to, as they say, set it and forget it. So I went downstairs to get some lunch and let Lola into the garden. And when I came back 30 minutes later, 42 minutes, it said. 10 minutes later, 45 minutes, it said. Things were not going well. A quick Google resulted in me ending up at the pCloud Help Center. And it said, and I quote, Important note, we strongly advise against cutting and pasting your files in order to upload them to pCloud Drive. Drag and drop or copy and pasting your files is appropriate for small amounts of data. It's not recommended for large files or large volumes of files. So that's where I'd gone wrong. I opened up a finder window and noticed that the amount of free disk space on my Mac's hard drive was one gigabyte. When I started this process, I had 250 gigabytes free. I assumed wrongly that as I copied files across to the pCloud drive folder, they would be uploaded to the pCloud server and then immediately be removed from the local pCloud folder, just leaving the pointer file. Well, maybe that's what happens, but it wasn't happening fast enough. There was obviously a bottleneck, so I killed the process by force quitting Finder, which would have been fine and dandy, except it left me with 10 gig free on my hard drive. I deleted all the files from the pCloud drive folder. I emptied the trash. I rebooted several times. Nothing would get me back my 250 gig. I ran my Windows VM. I needed it later that day to create a video and it wouldn't run. Not enough disk space, it said. Would you like to reclaim some space? Yes, please, I said. It reclaimed about 10 gig of space. I think it does that by deleting temporary files that it creates, which aren't always automatically deleted. And once the 10 gig had been reclaimed, there was enough space for it to run. And it ran quite well, proving that you don't need gigs and gigs of free space to run a VM at a reasonable speed. I actually have two Windows VMs. Each one has a different version of Office on it. One has the latest standard build and the other has the latest 365 beta build. So I did the same with the other VM and got back another 10 gig of space. 
At that point, I left it and created my video. It was only later that evening that a chance remark by you helped me to get back all the missing space and more. You said to me, have you ever started a job and wish you hadn't bothered or something like that? I think you were trying to get some disk space back too. So at that point, I told you my sad, sorry tale, which I probably would have told you at some point in about 2025 when I'd exhausted all the other options. Actually, I'm very glad I did mention it because otherwise we'd have hit the 1st of January 2025 and I'd still be missing my 250 gig of disk space. I just didn't want to bother you with my technical woes. Have you cleared the pCloud cache, you asked me? The answer to that was no. So off I went to pCloud Drive Preferences and hit Clear Cache. Still no joy. Still only 30 gig available on the hard drive. At this point, you had remoted into my iMac and attempted to take control of it. But the iMac that had the problem was the one in the studio, which I had remoted into from the iMac in the office, which is where we both were. So you were trying to control the mouse of an iMac by remoting into the, an iMac that I was using to remote into another iMac. It didn't end well and bad words were said. So it ended up with you telling me what to click or press and me doing it. Press command shift and full stop, you said. It displays hidden files and folders. That was a new one to me. I normally use Pathfinder when I need to display hidden files. I can't remember exactly what you did, but you found a hidden folder called bin. And inside that folder was a pCloud folder. And in there were the files that I'd copied across to pCloud Drive. Delete those, you said. And a couple of minutes later, I had 321 gig of space back, which is 70 gig more than I started the day with. 321 gig will do me for the moment, so when I get a bit more time, I'll then move mum's files over to pCloud in batches. I'd spent the afternoon tracking down 105 gig of hard drive space stolen by Camtasia after a rather spectacular crash. Very similar to you, although I will say you were far too optimistic thinking all that data would upload without incident. I tracked down my free space with a whole battery of tricks. Very handily, they worked for you too. So it was a hidden pCloud folder inside a hidden bin folder inside the user folder. Emptying the bin did nothing while the folder was hidden, hence making it visible, then nuking it. When you've done with all that, you can then hide the hidden folders again. Have you noticed how it's getting increasingly tricky to get away with a one terabyte hard drive? Stuff is just automatically downloading from the cloud and being cached, or hard drive space vanishing from underneath you. I think it's all a plot to get me to upgrade to a two terabyte SSD, for which I'm going to need more kidneys. Air tags. Yes, air tags. The things we buy to track the things that we don't want to lose. Not a tricky concept, but only I could lose the air tag, but not lose the item that it was attached to. I probably need to explain that one. I have two air tags. Each one is attached to a set of keys. I have front door keys and I have car keys. They're not on the same keyring for two reasons. One, it cuts the risk of losing all my keys by 50%. And two, if I take Lola for a walk, I don't need to carry my car keys. I actually have a spare set of house keys on the same keyring as my car keys. So if I do go out in the car, I don't need to take two sets of keys. Complicated, hey? Anyway, the other day I left the house at 6am to take Lola for a walk. It was dark. I'd literally just left the house and was walking past next doors. 
and I did what every dog owner does. I put my hand in my pocket to check I had some poo bags, which was when the horror of it hit me. No, not the poo bags. I had those. That wasn't the problem. My finger went through the rubber ring attached to my keys and said rubber ring should have had an air tag in it. Yes, I'd lost my air tag. So I retraced my steps all the way back to the front door using my iPhone torch to light the way. Lola was less than impressed. As I said, we'd only just left the house. I enabled find my air tag on my iPhone, but even that couldn't find it. I know I'd had the air tag the day before and I'd only been out of the house twice. Once was to walk Lola the evening before and that morning again to walk Lola. So I carried on with the walk thinking, nay praying, that one, it had fallen out of the rubber holder and dropped on the floor at home. And two, if it had, Lola hadn't taken the opportunity to partake of an extra treat and swallowed it. I got back from the walk and I told you, and let's just say you were most displeased. Bad words were definitely said. You suggested that I fire up Find My on my Mac, and I'd already done that on the phone without success, so I wasn't confident. However, it did say that it was last seen at 4.26am that morning, when I was in bed, at an address 20 yards away from our house. That could have taken some explaining, Mike. I'd predict more than bad words from her. After any explanation you could come up with to explain that. I don't know about you, but I don't find Apple's location services accurate. So I ignored what the phone and subsequently the Mac told me. You, however, were insistent. Leave the dog here, you said. Go across the road and see if it's there. So off I went, walking up the street, waving the iPhone torch at the pavement, wondering what passers-by would be thinking. I got to said location where Apple Location Services believed my AirTag to be. And guess what was there? Nestling under an overgrown bush. Yes, one AirTag. Success! I grabbed it and headed off home, waving it in triumph. But hang on, my AirTag? Was it mine? I dragged the thing back home before wondering if it was actually my AirTag. We hadn't had them engraved, so it could have been anybody's AirTag. I then had a brainwave. Do the ping your air tag thing. Music to my ears, it was mine. So the only thing left to do is wait the 10 years that it will probably take me to live this down. I lost the air tag that was supposed to be attached to the thing I didn't want to lose, but didn't lose the thing I didn't want to lose, my keys. Clearly, the rubber ring thing isn't as attached as it might be. There's only one solution, a Prince Albert. That'll focus your mind on not leaving your toys lying around in bushes of a dubious nature. But moving swiftly along... The web version of Excel has come a long way over the past few years. In fact, over the past 12 months, Microsoft have added a ton of features, which ties in with their philosophy of cloud first. I can't say it's on a par with the desktop version, but it's certainly getting there. So what is Excel for the web? It's what it sounds like. It's a version of Excel that runs in a web browser, which means it's available on any device that has a web browser. Although I'm talking about Excel for the web, there's also web versions of Word, PowerPoint, Outlook and OneNote. To use any of these, you will need a Microsoft account. And if you don't have one, you can sign up for a free one via the office.com website. The link's in the show notes. 
if you have a paid-for Microsoft 365 account, that already includes access to the web versions of all the Office applications, so you don't need a separate account. In terms of the functionality of the web applications, there's no difference between the free and paid-for Microsoft accounts. So, why pay for a 365 account? Well, that's a discussion for another day. But, in essence, more storage space on OneDrive, Microsoft's cloud storage service, and if you use the desktop versions of the Office applications, you get new features added each month. Having said that, Microsoft are updating the web versions of the applications more regularly than they used to as well. As I said, to use Excel for web, all you need is a browser. So, what if you were using Excel on an iPad or an iPhone? Should you use Excel for web? Or should you use the dedicated app? If you're thinking, what app? In 2014, Microsoft brought out dedicated apps for Word, Excel and PowerPoint. There was actually a lot of negativity that, compared to the desktop applications, functionality was very limited. Now, Microsoft's response to that was that these apps were designed from the ground up. The functionality that the apps contained and the functionality that was left out was deliberate. The apps were designed to reflect how a mobile user would use the apps. For example, you're more likely to use the camera on the mobile device to take a photo of a table of data that could be converted into something editable. So Microsoft added that feature to the mobile version of Excel long before they added it to the desktop version. You can't create a pivot table or a Power Query query on the iPad version of Excel, but then the iPad is probably not powerful enough to handle thousands of rows of data. Then there was the size does matter thing. Should we call that SizeGate? Initially, if you had a free Microsoft account, you were limited to opening existing files in read-only mode. If you wanted to create a new workbook or edit an existing one, you'd need a paid-for 365 subscription. When Apple brought out the 12.9-inch iPad Pro in late 2015, Microsoft decided to change the rules. If you're using a device with a screen smaller than 10 inches, so the 9.7-inch iPad or an iPad mini, you can create and edit documents using the Office apps with just a free Microsoft 365 account. But if you want to create and edit documents using the Office apps on an iPad bigger than 10 inches, you'll need a paid-for 365 subscription. SizeGate only relates to the mobile apps, the ones you download from the App Store. So if you're using Excel for the web, as long as you have a 365 subscription, even a free one, you can create and edit documents using an iPad of any size. Without a 365 subscription, you won't be able to create new documents and you'll have read-only access to existing ones. Personally, I don't use the apps as they're nowhere near as feature-rich as the browser versions of Office. So, what can you do with Excel on the web and what functionality is missing compared to the desktop version? Let's start with workbooks and files. You can create a new workbook using a blank workbook template or one of the many Microsoft supplied templates. These are the same templates that you have access to from the desktop app. Having said that, just like the desktop app, if you have a free Microsoft account, your choice of templates is limited. Whereas if you have a paid for 365 account, you get access to a huge range of what Microsoft call premium templates. New workbooks must be saved to OneDrive. 
although once saved, you can download them to your computer. And you can also open existing files, but they have to be stored on OneDrive. So if they're not, if they're stored locally on your computer, you can upload them to OneDrive right from within Excel. I'm not going to go through a shopping list of features, but just to point out some of the features that have been added this year. Last month, they added check performance. So now, when you open your workbook, Excel can detect whether your workbook contains unwanted formatted cells that can slow down your workbook. They also added the ability to share a section of a workbook. For a long time, you've been able to share an entire workbook, but now you can share just a section of the workbook with other people. And when I say section, it could be a specific range of cells, it could be a table, it could be a chart. And talking of charts, charts now respond to dynamic arrays. So you can create a chart from a range that's generated from a dynamic array formula. And the chart will now update to capture all data whenever the array recalculates, rather than being fixed to a specific number of data points. In August, Microsoft added support for 14 new functions that they recently made available in the desktop versions of Excel. And these 14 functions are the ones that were initially released to the Beta Insider users in March. That was when I pulled an all-nighter to get a video out. I've put a link to the video in the show notes. They also made some improvements to Power Query and added some formatting features. And as I said at the start of the piece, it's still got a long way to go to be on par with the desktop version. And I doubt we'll ever get 100% parity. There's no way to edit existing Power Query queries or create new ones. Although, who knows, that may change. There's no way to upload data into the data model, nor create pivot tables based on the data model. There's no VBA editor, nor can you run existing macros. But that's where Office scripts come in. Office scripts are a new way of automation. VBA isn't dead, not by any stretch of the imagination. It'll be a long, long time, I think, before VBA is no longer part of Excel. But Office scripts are the new kid on the block as far as automation's concerned. They run in a browser, they run on mobile devices, but right now they can only do a fraction of what VBA can do. So that's Excel for the web. Overall, for the non-power user, it's a viable alternative to the desktop app. Just before we go, we might not have been treated to an Apple event this month, but you could very well want to mark your diaries for next week. When we at MacBytes will be making a very special announcement, we could give you a clue. But where's the fun in that? I know what it is. Hush, or she'll mute you permanently. My silicon lips are sealed. So are mine. So, don't miss next week's show. You'll want to listen to it ASAP. Nobody will have heard the second half of that sentence. The MacBiters faint in at the utterance of, next week. Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. So please send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. If you'd like to support what we do, keeping us completely independent, visit macbytes.co.uk and hit the donate button. And we must say a huge thank you to those who did just that after our previous shows. Our sincere thanks to you. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytes Siri.
So until next time, this has been Elena Mike bringing you Mac Bites. Goodbye. Goodbye. And see you next time. What are you searching Google for? Why are you so nosy? Because you're usually up to mischief. And? And I might need to save you from yourself. Well, for once, I'm being a loyal and trusty assistant. I'll believe that when I see it. No, really, I am. So, what are you searching for? Well, after the fiasco with Mike losing his air tag, I thought I'd try to ensure it didn't happen again. And how are you going to do that? I'm going to learn topiary. Topiary? Yes, topiary. And how will that help? It'll mean I can do something artistic with the neighbor's bush. Tell me that's not what you've used as the search term. What? The word topiary? No, something about trimming the neighbor's bush. Well, I was struggling to spell topiary, so I. O. M. G. What? I absolutely shouldn't have selected images for the search results.